Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. It's another jam-packed edition of the podcast. We'll talk week five of the high school football season with Adam Schinder. Siena women's soccer head coach Steve Karbowski discusses the Saints' MAC tournament championship game Friday against Monmouth. I'll talk to former Union College men's hockey goalie Chris Mayotte, who was introduced as the new head coach of Colorado College on Monday. And we'll look back at the career of legendary WRGB Channel 6 news anchor Ernie Tatro, who died last Thursday at the age of 94 with Liz Bishop. Let's talk Siena men's basketball. Uh, Last week, Saints standout Jalen Pickett entered the NCAA transfer portal. And to talk about that is the man who covers the Saints for the Gazette, sports editor Michael Kelly. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Long time no chat. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Ken. So, was this announcement uh, surprising? Um, Surprising in the timing, just because it felt like if Jalen Pickett was going to enter into the transfer portal, into the transfer portal, um, you know, you would have expected maybe a week earlier than he did announce. Um, but in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense. He's a, you know, he's a three, three-time all-conference player in the MAC um, in an age of, uh, you know, of college basketball where, you know, as soon as you're an all-conference anything, you transfer. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so, so he was there for three years. And, uh, you know, I think to uh, – the fact that these kids all get an extra year of playing eligibility um, that the NCAA granted um, this past season because of, you know, because of COVID-19 and, you know, basically uh, banking on there being disruptions, which there were, um, you know, Jalen Pickett now is a, you know, he's a three-time all first team, all Mac guy who now can go to a bigger program and he has two seasons left. Um, So that makes him really attractive to, you know, pretty much any, high major program. Um, so, no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The timing is a little surprising. Um, but, you know, just with the way this whole last year has played out, you know, I, I guess uh, I guess we really should be ready <laughs> for anything, anytime. Um, and, and we should stop being surprised by things like that. Yeah, I mean, we're just, it's going to be crazy. I mean, if, if the players are – it seems like we're, you know, this is basically now free agency with college basketball and all college sports. You know, for years, it be, you have to sit out. But now – I mean, as we talk here on Wednesday, the NCAA is discussing the possibility of uh, not having, if the players transfer, they don't have to sit out. Right, yeah, and that is expected to pass. And frankly, it needs to, or else there might not be college basketball next season because we've got 1,200, 1,300, you know, it grows by the day, kids in the portal. So if all those guys are unable to play next season um, because they had to sit out, uh, I don't really know how we'd be filling out rosters. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that rule is going to pass whether or not it's today, tomorrow, or, you know, if it gets stabled for a month or whatever. Um, but that rule is going to pass. Um, you know, and it's going to change the sport a lot. Um, because, you know, I think we're going to see more off seasons like this current one, which, you know, these past, you know, several years, we've had a lot of transfers already. Um, but now, you know, it really becomes the rule, um, that you're going to have, you know, turnover of about half your roster every season. Um, so, you know, I think what we're seeing right now, you know, quickly becomes the new normal. 
you talked to um, you talked to Pickett last week. What did, did, did he seem confident he's going to land somewhere? And uh, and what about his time at Siena? Yeah, I mean, he talked. I mean, he talked a bunch about you know that it was still you know basically a really difficult decision down to the wire. Um, you know, to make and, you know, cause I, I think he really did enjoy his time at Siena. Um, I think, you know, that was a program that gave him a chance to be a star, which, uh, I don't think that any other program was really interested in giving that opportunity to Jalen Pickett, you know, coming out of prep school. Um, so I, you know, I think there was, I think he enjoyed his time at Siena. I think there was a lot of loyalty there as well. Um, which, you know, is why Jalen Pickett was at Siena for three seasons instead of one. Um, because, you know, if you play, you know, if you, if you do this out a hundred times, a player like Jalen Pickett doesn't stay at Siena for three seasons in very many of those simulations. It's, you know, it's probably one or two of them. Um, you know, in terms of where he's headed, um, you know, it, it's probably hyperbole to say anywhere he wants, but, it's going to be relatively close to that because he he has the size and the skills to play at the high major level. He's you know he's 21 years old. He's not 18 years old. So programs know what they're getting. Um, and again, he's going to be available now for two years. So you know if you're a program who you know maybe you have a roster spot, but you know maybe you don't want to use it on a one year guy. Um, you know, a two-year guy is basically the best you can expect from any of your high school <laughs> recruits at this point. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, I think you're going to see him land at a high major school, mostly of his choosing, because um, I think that's where the interest level is going to be. I mean, this is really a tough time for Seattle. I mean, they lost, what, three of their all-conference all players? I mean, besides that, Manny Camper is going to try for the pros, and Jordan King is in the portal. Yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a, it's pretty much a full reboot for Siena this off season. Um, you know, as we're talking today, which is uh, which is Wednesday, um, Siena's added two new players um, from the transfer portal in Colby Rogers, who's from Cal Poly, and Anthony Gaines, who's from uh, Northwestern. Um, and you know, so they're restocking in a really interesting way, where they've really targeted. These six foot four, six foot five, six foot six wing players. Um, you know, Carmen Masarello, you know, has, has always talked about wanting to be basically long athletic on the perimeter. Um, and, you know, because of the roster he inherited and, you know, just the way things played out, you know, Sienna, you know, especially this last season, really wasn't able to play that way. Um, so what you're seeing this offseason so far. You know, there's been some high-profile departures from Siena, some expected, some unexpected. Um, but what you're seeing is Siena really starting to build toward the type of roster that they want to have. And obviously they would want to have Jill and Pickett be a part of that roster. I'm not trying to say that, you know, that they're they're thrilled <laughs> that, that Jill and Pickett isn't there. Um, but you're, you're seeing the type of player that they're bringing in. Um, and I think the type of player they're bringing in right now this offseason – um, you know, I think is more conducive to the style of play that they want to play. Um, so I think they're at a really interesting point uh, program-wise because, um, you know, Carmen Masarell has been there for two years. Year three seems like it'll be the first year where we really see the type of team 
um, that he wants to put on the floor. Uh, now the question is, does that become successful? Obviously, we don't know at this point. But uh, do you think he can, you know, make it this program what he wants and make it a winning program? Yeah, I mean, I think Siena, you know, even before these transfers uh, came in, which you know, I, I think you know, both the transfers that came in today, Rodgers and Gaines, and you know, I mean, especially Gaines, who's coming from the Big Ten, and his numbers are you know super modest. Um, you know, in terms of counting statistics, but he's coming from the Big Ten to the MAC, so he is going to be pretty good. <laughs> um, but even before that, you know, I thought Seattle was still going to be a top half of the league um, type team in the MAC. Um, when you looked at what they were bringing back, with you know, just when you look at uh, Aiden Carpenter, Colin Golson, those are the two freshmen who will be sophomores who you know both had Rookie of the Week, um, you know, honors during their freshman season. You know, so that potential is there, and we've seen it. Um, and then Jackson Stormo, uh, the big man who averaged, you know, double-digit scoring, um, you know, who didn't even start the full season. So that's three really good building blocks. Um, so, you know, I thought that would keep them in the top half of that map. I think with the additions you've seen now in these last couple weeks, even with the departure of Pickett, um, you know, I think Siena is still a, you know, they're, they're going to be a top three, top four type team, I think, in the map. Um, I think that's what the expectation should be, at least as of right now. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what else happens with the roster. Um, you know, going into last season, they were, you know, the hands-down favorite to, to win the league. They obviously no longer have that status. Um, but, you know, the, the people who thought they were going to fall all the way back because of, you know, losing Camper, losing King, and losing Pickett. Um, you know, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think this is still a, a you know a top half and trending even better than that um, team in the MAC. Of course, we have to see who the uh, recruiting class is at this point. So it's going to be an interesting offseason for the Saints. Yeah, I mean, they still have multiple scholarships open after bringing in. You know, in the offseason, they brought in four players, um, and that doesn't include the couple freshmen that they had signed. You know, going back to to last year. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's still a lot more movement <laughs> to come. Um, you know, it wouldn't be, you know, I'm not reporting this or anything, but it wouldn't be a shock if there was another player or two to leave, um, just because that's college basketball here in 2021. Um, so, I mean, we still have a long way to go until, you know, November when this season starts. Um, you know, but I think right now, you know, especially with, you know, maybe where with where people were, you know, late last week after Pickett announced he was leaving. Um, you know, I think here, you know, barely a week later, you know, I think if you're a Siena fan, you have to feel pretty good, um, you know, about about where things are going. Obviously, you know, you, you want Jalen Pickett to, to stay and to graduate from Siena because he's, you know, he's one of the program's all-time greats. Um, but, you know, I think this is still going to be a very competitive team uh, in the MAC as we move forward. Well, I remember back in the days when I covered Union College hockey early on when the season was off season, there was no news, and now it's like you really have no off season for you know, covering covering teams anymore because there's always news coming out. With especially now, the, the people entering, the kids entering the uh, transfer portal. Well, hey, I mean, let let's just get uh, you know really real. I took this week off. I thought this was the week. Uh, <laughs> that uh, that there maybe wouldn't be you know too much news in terms of college basketball, and 
I was very wrong. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your vacation then, sir. <laughs> sure, sure, I will. Right. If I can, if I'm allowed. Right. Thanks, Mike. That's Michael Kelly. Uh, Adam Schindler joins me next to talk high school football here on the Parting Shots Podcast. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in New York. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Byron Hunter, the world champion New York Giants. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. It's our weekly segment of high school football, week five, as we get you set for that. And we have some playoff action coming up, and Adam Schindler will talk about that. Uh, Adam, welcome back to the podcast, and uh, Class AA gets ready for the postseason. Yes, in this sort of very weird, constructed, uh, different classification setting up different playoffs class double a uh had one of the odder setups for a uh, determining seating that i've ever seen uh they played four, each team played the four teams in the other division during the regular season those records ended up seeding them into divisional playoffs so we'll have the divisional semifinals this week the divisional finals next week, and then the two division champions will meet in the championship game in week seven. Who came up with that concept? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but uh, it did end up giving us some pretty interesting matchups uh, for for this uh, week one of the playoffs. You know, uh, the Empire Division, uh, Gilderland, ends up getting the number one seed by a single quarter point uh, on the tiebreaker over Shenandoah. You know, both teams finished the season three and one. Their only loss to Shaker. Gilderland scored some points against Shaker. They're the only team to score against Shaker this year. So they get the number one seed. They'll play Saratoga Springs. Shenandoah, they're the number two seed. They'll play Schenectady. Uh, Schenectady is a team that's kind of had a very up and down. When they've won, they've looked terrific. When they've lost, they've had two uh, pretty tough losses against two very good teams. And they're going to face a very good team in Shenandoah on uh, Friday night. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a tough yeah. tough go for them, Out, I think. Outside of Shaker, who has been pretty much untouchable this year, since Losing 20 nothing to Shaker in week one, Shen has looked phenomenal in its last three weeks. So we're looking at a Shen-Gilderland matchup in, this, uh, in the division final? It does look like we might get Shen-Gilderland. Uh, if those two teams events, we'll get a Shen-Gilderland Empire Division final rematch uh, of the 2019 Class AA Super Bowl at Shen 1. Uh, in the Liberty Division, Shaker, who has just been absolutely dominant, three shutouts in four games. They host Bethlehem. CBA host colony. CBA uh, started out red hot, crushed Saratoga Springs and Schenectady. Two shutouts in its first two games, but it's coming in off back-to-back losses to Shannon Gilbert. Yeah, that's going to be a tough for them. So uh, the other divisions are still playing regular season games. If there's not any COVID situations, uh, uh, Class A, what's going on there this weekend? So Class A, uh, I mean, Class A, we've pretty much had two teams separate themselves from the field. Troy has looked absolutely phenomenal. Burnt Hills on the others, uh, in, the, in the Capital Division, in the Grasso Division, Burnt Hills, Boston Lake. Both those teams are 4-0. Both those teams on the Week 5 schedule have games that should uh, chalk up as pretty easy wins. Troy goes to Albany. Uh, Burnt Hills goes to Scotia Glenville. 
So this is the final week of the regular season for Class A, and you would think everything seems to line up for an eventual Burn Hills Troy showdown week seven. Now, there could be a few flies in the ointment. Uh, Queensbury uh, kind of laid an egg uh, in, in its game against Burn Hills, but that was Burn Hills' third game. It was Queensbury's first due to some COVID situations in Queensbury. Queensbury came back last week with a with a good win uh, against Balsam Spa this past Monday night. So maybe the Spartans uh, get up there. LaSalle's played good football uh, as of late. They have a key game Friday night at April Park that's probably going to decide who is the number two team behind Troy uh, in the Capital Division. And unlike Class of Way, they're actually playing in the division. Yeah, these teams are playing <laughs> exclusive division schedules with a couple of uh, – tweaks. We've had a couple of uh, interdivision crossovers scheduled for this week. Uh, so Mahonison is now scheduled to play Columbia. Amsterdam is scheduled to play Boston Spa on Friday night, uh, both of which could be some pretty interesting games. Well, in Class B, it looks like Chalmont emerges the uh, class of that day after that win over Lansingburg on Saturday. Yeah, Chalmont in its two games against Class B competition has looked terrific. They also have a win over a Class A team in this unit who is really a Class A team was uh, playing down as a playoff ineligible team uh, if this were a regular season. Uh, Glens Falls had to wait a few weeks to get started. They've looked very, very good. They're averaging almost 50 points a game. Uh, and because, uh, But beyond that, those other teams, you know, we've still got a, a third undefeated team in Class B. We brought all in first, only played one game so far. Uh, they missed. They've had, they had, they had back-to-back games sat out due to, to COVID issues, uh, but actually uh, was in conversation with their coach, Jim Pelno, uh, earlier today on Tuesday. And as of now, BP is on track to play a game against Green Tech Friday night. Will they be able to make the playoffs at this point? Yeah, I haven't really figured out. Class B is even one step beyond. So Class B is playing six weeks of a regular season and then just straight top fin- – the finishers in each division are lining up to play each other. So uh, I have to look at – Week six, I don't know if Brown and Glens Falls are scheduled to play each other. Uh, so we could have weird tiebreaker scenarios or just those could just end up being crossover games where you're not really worrying about who a champion is because Class B has really been all over the map as far as who's gotten in uh, for different games. How about Class C? What are we looking at there? Uh, Class C, like Class A, the top two have absolutely uh, really pulled away from the field. Schuylerville, which was the Class B champion in 2019, has just run over its competition uh, this year. They've allowed 22 points uh, in four games. Who's uh, Falls Tamarack, first year merge team uh, on the other on the uh, the southern side of Class C. They've allowed 11 points thus far this season. They've they really run over their competition. Uh, based on you know what I'm looking, I think the uh, the northern half of Class C is a little more competitive. Those games tend to be a little bit closer. But Hoosick Falls Tamarack has been incredibly impressive, which uh, which is good for that program. You know, the Hoosick Falls program really had a, a tough blow last year when, when their longtime coach, Ron Jones, passed away. Uh, and putting together a season like that in his memory is, is really is really nice to see. That program was, uh, for the early part of the last decade, the Hoosick Falls and Burnt Hills were the standard bearers for, for consistent excellence. And to see them get back there, it's – it's good. It's a highlight program in Section 2. And in Class D, uh, Greenwich and uh, Lake George, Hadley, Luzerne, uh, both undefeated uh, as they headed this, this week. Yeah, Greenwich uh, Greenwich has been terrific all through this year. Hadley, Luzerne, Lake George 
has really emerged uh, as a very, very good team. Their, their quarterback, Cole Clark, threw seven touchdown passes a week ago, which was one off the Section 2 record, uh, set a couple of years ago by Joe Tortella when he was in Holy Trinity. Uh, again, would be a terrific game to see down the road. Uh, it's been a little bit weird in, in Class C, because some of their Class D, some of these teams that you would have expected to be right up there that normally are, you know, Stillwater has had a very, very tough schedule. They play Lake George and Luzerne. They play Greenwich. Uh, and Cambridge-Salem, which Cambridge is a favorite to win a championship in any class they're in. Uh, they've only played twice this season, but they played up in week one against Ravina, lost to a class B team, lost to Lake George and Luzerne last week, and get Greenwich this week. So it's been a brutal, brutal schedule for, uh, again, one of the most consistently good programs yeah. Let's take a look at the second two week four rankings, which came out a day later than normal in Wednesday's paper. Because we, uh, obviously, you had four days of football yeah, this we had, past we had some, week. We've had some, we some Monday night football. <laughs> uh, bring out the Hank Williams Jr. Yeah, I know. We had Steve Levy and uh, Brian Greasy and uh, Louis Riddick out calling the games there. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, Class AA, uh, Shakers still number one. Gildeland moved up ahead of Shen in uh, uh, two. Shen went to three. CBA is at four and Schenectady at five. So pretty much, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty much those those rankings. Look, the last couple of weeks have pretty much been been crystallized. Uh, you know, Shannon Gilderland, it's as close to a tie as it can be. Again, I think uh, all four of us uh, on the voting panel, uh, that one was a unanimous pick for Gilderland. So I gave it gave it to Gilderland just for getting the tiebreaker and for their slightly better result against Shaker. But those games are now both a couple of weeks in the past, and that's. That's probably the most anticipated game of the year if we can get a Shen Gilderland double uh, A uh, Empire Division final. And we should mention that you, uh, sports editor Michael Kelly, Stan Hootie, and Jim Schultz are also uh, vote on the rankings yep. each week. So Class A, Troy, uh, Burn Hills, one two, followed by Queensbury, Avril Park, and LaSalle. With yep. Niskina getting a vote, and as well as Boston Spa. Yeah, it's uh, Class Class A after the top two is a gigantic jumble. Uh, Balsam Spa is a team that's one and two, but they have arguably looked better against Burn Hills than anybody. Uh, you know, LaSalle is a team that has won two straight since an opening loss to Troy, but uh, hasn't, you know, their last game was against Albany, who's an opponent that hasn't really, that's really struggled uh, for the last few seasons. It's just such a giant jumble there. Niski Yuna's uh, coming off a good win against Scotia. Glendale. Queensbury is the mystery of all mysteries. They've played two games. They lost by seven touchdowns to Burnells. They came back. They got a good win against Boston Spa Monday night uh, with their really good running back, Jason Rodriguez, scoring all three of their touchdowns. In Class B, Shawmont one, uh, Glens Falls two, Hudson's three, South Glens Falls four, and Broad Alton Perth five. Yeah, uh, so Shawmont and Glens Falls both undefeated. Hudson has looked really good in its wins. Uh, unfortunately, its one loss was uh, a big-time 51-0 shutout at the hands of Shalmont, so you can kind of see where the delineation is. South Glens Falls, uh, another team that's only played once, they lost, but they actually put up a really re – they're 1-1, one one, excuse me, and a good win against South uh, against Hudson Falls. And we're very competitive in a 50-34, to really high-scoring game against Glens Falls. And then Ronald Perth looked very good in its one win and hasn't played since. Over in Class C, it's Skylerville 1, Hoosick Falls, Slash Tamarick 2, Mechanicville 3, Granville 4, Kasaki Actons 5. Yeah, when you so again, uh, Skylerville and Hoosick Falls, Tamarack have really separated themselves. Mechanicville 
uh, was beaten badly uh, in its first game by Skylar Dolls. Come back, won three games uh, by a grand by a grand total of, of uh, twenty two points. So mm. they've been they're playing right in there. They are playing extremely tight games. Granville lost a very tight game uh, to McGonagall. Came back this week, had a uh, had a two point win over Fonda Fultonville. And Kentucky Evans was undefeated until they ran into uh, who's it called Stanford yeah. this past weekend. And wrapping up, Class D with Greenwich one, uh, Lake George had Luzerne number two, uh, Chatham three, Voorheesville four, Cambridge Salem five. Yeah, again, this one's been uh, fairly simple with those top two undefeated teams really setting the pace. Uh, Chatham. Lost a tough game. Uh, again, went up in class, lost to Lansingburg a couple of weeks ago. Had a good win over Voorheesville, which itself posted a very good one over Ken Cherry Fort Plain this week. And even though they're 0-2, Cambridge-Salem gets the respect of that of that program for being in that spot. Well, I appreciate a few minutes uh, talking high school football. Thanks very much. All right, that's Adam Schinder of the, uh, the Gazette. Coming up, we're going to talk Siena women's soccer with head coach Steve Karbowski as the Saints get ready to host the MAC Tournament Championship game Friday against Monmouth. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Sign up for the weekly Daily Gazette sports newsletter. The newsletter features updates on the local sports scene from our staff writers, debate on topics local and national, and reveals the latest guests for the Parting Shots Podcast. The newsletter is free. To sign up, head to dailygazette.com. Hi, this is Brett Samuels, White House reporter for The Hill and a former Daily Gazette staff writer. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Glad you're back here on the Parting Shots Podcast. The Siena women's soccer team will be hosting the MAC tournament title game Friday when it takes on Monmouth. To talk about it is the Saints head coach, Steve Karbowski. Steve, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hey, doing very good. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate a few minutes, Steve. And uh, how much are you looking forward to Friday? Um, oh, yeah, this is exciting. This is what you you talk about all year long and you practice and train for and, and get the team prepared for. And it's, it's hard to get to this point. So we're very excited and looking forward to it. I mean, talk about how hard it is. I mean, just the fact that you're able to get a season going. I mean, uh, how hard was it to get it going and – you know, staying uh, the course with not having uh, many COVID situations. Yeah, that's probably the most impressive part is just all the starts and stops and delays. Even going back to the summer, we weren't sure if we were going to play in the fall, and that got shortened and delayed and eventually kind of canceled and postponed. Um, And then you come back in the spring, and you're still kind of dealing with it. Um, So... The team, the players, they've made a lot of sacrifices to, to be careful and take care of themselves. So that's, that's been the challenge, and I think that makes it that more uh, more sweet and impressive to keep going and get to this point. What's going to be the key against Monmouth? This is a team you played earlier this season. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, it was a 1-1 tie. Yeah, definitely have some recency against them. They're, they're uh, the top team. They're the defending champ. Um and I think they're playing very well right now. They've had a couple injuries early in the season that I think they've uh, kind of fixed what they wanted to do now and uh, how to cover for them. Um, but we're, we're excited. We think, um, you know, we played them after one of our busy weeks. It was like the third game in five days of, after a couple road trips. And uh, I think we'll probably have some better legs with a few days uh, of 
play good. We'll have to play uh, very good defensively, handle their strikers who are very skillful and dynamic, and then have some possession so we're, we're not defending, um, you know, too much. How important is, you mentioned Derek Monmouth is the defending champions. How important is it going to be not to, you know, just to continue to play your game, not focus on the fact, well, these guys are the defending champions and we, we're, we're afraid of them? Yeah, I think the, the game we played against them recently, that, that's going to help us because that was a even game. We played well, 1-1 uh, tie, but I think we feel we probably didn't play our best game that day, uh, and I think we've been playing better since we got into the MAC tournament. So I think that's enough to give us the confidence to say, okay, let's play our best game, and we're going to have a good chance. You started off the postseason with a 3 nothing win over Iona last Friday and then on Monday uh, knocked out Ryder 2-1. to one. How do you guys feel, how do you feel as, as this team is playing as they head into the, in the championship game Friday? Um, I think we're doing, doing well. I thought the first half against Iona in the quarterfinal was, uh, was a little tight, a little nervous. The first playoff game, even for some of our upperclassmen experienced players, it took us a while to get into it. But the second half was really good. Um, put that game away with a couple late goals. And then I thought we played a real full, complete game against Ryder in the semifinal, kind of right from the start and uh, finishing that game off. So probably played maybe our three best halves of the season going into the final. So I think that, that shows well for our, our momentum. Hey, what were your expectations coming into this season? Uh, obviously, it was going to be a shortened season. You were predicted to finish eighth. I mean, what were what were your expectations uh, leading into this uh, shortened campaign? Um, yeah, we you know after a, a tough twenty nineteen season, you know we finished down in the standings, and that probably led to our preseason ranking. You know, we started preparing right away after that, having some meetings, getting the team refocused. Um, we have a nice group of freshmen that came in. Um, we had a had a good fall uh, practice. Season. We didn't get to play games, but we had about eight weeks that we were practicing in smaller groups, and uh, I thought that was really beneficial. And um, we could kind of tell, you know, the team was was pretty good. We had some good talent. We were we were focused on doing better than that finish from 2019. Um, so your goal is always to get to this point, but um, you, you don't always get there. But uh, built some momentum throughout the spring. We had a couple good results early and. Confidence goes a long way when you start getting into the season. At what point, Steve, did you realize that you, this team was something special? Um, we, we opened the season. We played Iona, and we, we scored six goals in that game. And we don't score six goals in a game very often, no matter who we're playing. So I think that game really opened our eyes. Um, we had several players get a goal or an assist and contribute offensively. So we, we've always been a good defensive team, and we keep games close, and there's a lot of one-goal games. But when you add in, you know, some, some scoring threats and uh, some confidence, you know, it's a good combination that we're, we're not giving up a lot of goals. Defensively, has been strong. And then, uh, you know, we're finding different ways to score goals and had a lot of players contribute on the offensive side. And goaltending, uh, Leslie Adams played five games, two shutouts, Brooke uh, Bowmeister played two games and got shutouts in both. So you look, you look strong in goal. Yeah. Yep. They're both really good. And we kind of went into the season uh, this spring, you know, they're both going to play and kind of split some games and then we'll kind of see, see how it goes. 
graduated after the 2019 season. So this is really their first college action for both of them, and they both really stood up well and, uh, you know, give us a lot of confidence. And offensively, uh, Emmy, Emily McNillis, uh, uh, four goals on the season. Carrie Crone, uh, an area uh, player with three goals and two assists, uh, along with uh, uh, Jayana Mons. We'll talk about the offense. It looks like, just looking at the stats, it's a good balance. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, We don't have one player that we have to rely on. The other team can't focus on one player. Um, we've scored some goals out of the midfield where Emily plays. And then um, the strikers have scored as well. Uh, Kerry Crone and uh, Jayana play out on the wings. Have gotten some goals. So kind of coming from different uh, different directions, which is a good thing because someone might have an off game or you know be the focus of the other team and kind of get marked out of the game. So it's it's nice to have some some other options and a variety of goal scorers. What's going to be the key Friday to win for winning the championship? Um. Defensively, first, you know, Monmouth has um, good strikers, good wing play, a good one v one player. So we'll have to contain them and do do a very good job in that sense. Again, go back to keeping this a close, tight game, and then we've been able to find a goal um, in all of our games so far. So we feel like we'll do that again, and uh, it's just to be a pretty pretty close game. And how important is having home field advantage? Oh, that's been nice. That's that's been great just uh, for all the uh, arrangements you have to make on the road and, and buses and meals and planning. You know, that's just one less thing we've had to do. You know, we can really focus on just taking care of the team, recovery, planning our practices, watching video, whatever we need to do. You know, it's given us more time and uh, you, you don't have that bus to deal with and uh, um, sleeping in hotels and things like that. Well, Steve, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, good luck on Friday, and uh, hopefully the, for the Saints, uh, Mac Tournament Championship will be uh, coming your way. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thanks. That's Steve Karbowski. Coming up, I'll speak with former Union College men's hockey goalie and new Colorado College men's hockey head coach Chris Mayotte here on the Parting Shots podcast. Hi, this is Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette. These are difficult times. For most of us, the coronavirus crisis has been a time of unprecedented upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. What does it all mean for our health, our families, our jobs, and our futures? At the Daily Gazette, our journalists have been working tirelessly to answer these questions and many more that have come up during this whole pandemic. How many people have tested positive locally? How many have died? Has anyone died in the local nursing homes? Now, in these difficult times, we're turning to you to support our work by purchasing a subscription or making a donation to help fund our daily efforts. With your support, these are the questions we're continuing to report on. Every day, our reporters and photographers have been working the streets and the phones to answer these critical questions. And every day, they answer the bell with their timely and well-documented reports from the front lines in the region. Behind the scenes, the rest of our editorial team, including our sports writers, copy editors, and digital producers, have been wholly focused on covering the COVID-19 story. 
During this critical time, everyone here at the paper is working to provide important news and information to keep the community safe and connected. But our ability to serve our community is being threatened by some economic challenges posed by the pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders, business closures, and school shutdowns, and they're contributing to the massive instability in the local business landscape. Despite all of these changes, the Gazette will remain committed to serving the community for many years to come, just as we've been doing unfailingly for the past 125 years. So please go to thedailygazette.com and donate or purchase a subscription to the Daily Gazette. Thank you, be well, and please keep reading. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports writer Mike McAdam. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. My next guest was a goalie for the Union College men's hockey team from 2002 to 2006. He's been an assistant coach for Cornell, St. Lawrence, Providence, and Michigan. And on Monday, he was introduced as new head coach of Colorado College. Please welcome to the program, Chris Mayai. Chris, uh, welcome to the program. Congratulations, my friend. I'm, I'm proud of what you've done and accomplished. And uh, how excited are you to, to run your own program? Thank, first off, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, it's, uh, I look forward to, to kind of catching up a little bit. Um, man, it's, it's, I'm still pinching myself. And, and I was just out the campus. I'm actually flying back to Detroit right now, but... Uh, you walk around Colorado College and you see the $65 million arena that's about to be finished and, and the world-class education, the people that are there. And, uh, and then, obviously, you're in Colorado Springs, and, and I, feel like, uh, I feel like I've been given the keys to, to the great, you know, a program that has the potential to be the best in the country, which is uh, anytime you're considered for a head coaching job as an assistant, you know, you get all the chills, and, and it's really exciting, but the more and more I got into this, um, you know, I felt like this was just a once in a lifetime type of opportunity. So uh, I couldn't be more excited and, and excited to get, get to work. Now, was this your first interview for a head coaching job? No, uh, it was my fourth. So I interviewed at Alaska Anchorage, interviewed at St. Lawrence, interviewed at Dartmouth leading up to this. What was the interview process like? Uh, obviously your, your resume with a uh, frozen four title at Providence two. Uh, gold medals at the World Juniors. Uh, uh, what was the process like, and what what uh, won them over for you? This one was a little different. The the other three, um, you know, I, I had connections too, but I, I think I had to do a little more work. Uh, this one, quite honestly, I wasn't. I really wasn't expecting, uh, and I was going to, you know, find a way to to probably at least try to get in the mix. But they got in touch with me early on and and you know we just kind of hit it off and and i think there's a there's a vision uh, and of what colorado college as a school as an institution is trying to accomplish and, and where they want to go uh and then obviously a vision for the program uh and and the new athletic director leslie irvine this is her second year she's coming over uh from pomona and in, in california and so she's uh, she's ambitious. She's she has a ton of energy, and and I think we uh, she's looking for someone that kind of matched that. And, and uh, you know, as you know, it's a, it's a smaller school, and you know the values and the and the mission there is uh, is is academic excellence along with athletic excellence. And 
and and so she was hoping to find someone that she thought fit what they what they have at CC, but also what they're what they're trying to accomplish. And so, uh, like I said, she reached out, and and we kind of hit it off. And uh, after our first conversation, it went really well. And I think we you know we almost talked every day after that, leading up to going out to campus for an interview and uh, and the offer. I was exchanging emails with uh, Nate Lehman on Tuesday night, and uh, you played for Nate th- for three seasons at Union, of course, and worked with him as an assistant coach at Providence. And one of the questions I asked Nate was when he was when you played for him, uh, when you were playing uh, with Nate. Nate, I asked Nate, did you ever think that Chris Mayot would be a head coach? And his response was, No, no, no. <laughs> that's correct. Is, is that's, he right? That's, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's accurate. Um, you know, and that's that's a big part of of what my belief is, and why I believe in schools like Union and St. Lawrence and, and Colorado College is the amount of growth um, that someone can have in through college and and what college athletics and a good leader can do for them. Um, is I'm living proof. I mean, I, I got to Union. I wasn't the greatest student. Um, I, you know, I slid under their admission standards. Um, you know, I probably had a lot to learn in terms of how to conduct myself and, and how to be a, you know, uh, how to mature as a, as a man when I got there. And, and Union changed my life. And, uh, you know, Nate was, Nate was a huge part of that. So, um, and that's a that's a big thing that, that makes this job easy for me is I'm a you know I don't have to pretend that I believe in that I I am that so so it makes uh, it makes my job a lot of fun because I I feel like I can have that type of impact on young men's lives. How much did Nate impact you and help you when you were working with him at Providence and how did that all come about uh, you know, landing a job with him? Well, <laughs> he turned it down the two prior times I tried. Um, so it, it was my third time trying to get on his staff that he actually hired me. The first time I asked him if I could be his volunteer and he told me no. Um, so then I ended up going to Cornell and volunteering there, which was a good experience. But, um, but you know, it was incredible because you, you knew as a player, as soon as he took over Union, you understood as much as you can on a, from a player-coach standpoint, how hard he worked and how prepared he was and all the due diligence. And, and you, so, you know, when he took over Union, we really felt like everything we were doing and everything he did was giving us the best opportunity to win that we had. It didn't mean that we were going to win, but we knew we had everything we needed to, to play our best. And to, it gave us confidence to go out and, and, and play. Um, and, and so when you get to, when I got to Providence and was able to, you know, it was all just reconfirmed, uh, of his relentless work ethic, his passion, um, you know, his, and not just in terms of the hockey part, but who he is and caring for the people around him and and making sure that the people around him feel like they're valued and important. Um, you know, it's one of, it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And he, you know, one thing I give him a ton of credit for, and I think it's why he's he's one of, if not the best, and why he, he continues to, um, you know, to to succeed is that he's he's willing to continue to learn, and you know, he's so being an assistant for him was great because he allowed me to come with ideas, and and you know, he would he would listen to all of them, and 
somebody would take it, somebody wouldn't, but he gave he gave you know me as an assistant ownership over certain things and uh, empowered me to grow as a coach and, and as a person and as a leader. So um, that was that was a big time experience for me for sure. Yeah, yeah. I also asked him uh, how you've grown as a coach, and he, he said you, uh, you won championships, you know, recruiting top players and great role players. Uh, you've coached all aspects of the team. He is a very uh, bright young coach, so he had great things to say about you. Uh, what led you into coaching? I mean, after you graduated from Union, uh, what 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 led you to coaching? So I'll be honest. I, I won my my goal. Um, or my dream job was probably to be an NHL GM. Um, and I learned early on that uh, looking at NHL GM's resumes, that that probably didn't fit, uh, that I probably wasn't going to fit in there. And I had started coaching goalies in the offseason, starting after my sophomore year at Union College. And so I was coaching goalies in the offseason for eight years before I quit playing and I really developed a passion for it and realized that I was, you know, I, I had some skills at it and, and I could do it. Um, and, you know, and I think the big part is I'm relatable. I'm honest. I'm genuine. Uh, I am who I am. Uh, and I think people, uh, people trust that. And so I knew that I liked it. And, and then I, on top of that, I was sitting there down in Maryland where I was coaching goalies and I started looking at assistant coaches' resumes and, and, and what they have done in their history. And I realized that that was somewhere where my resume, you know, as a player and, um, and now with me coaching and goalie coaches, you know, were becoming more vital on staffs with, you know, Jason Tapp and guys. It seemed like everybody in the ECAC was trying to get a goalie guy on staff. Um, so then, it, it you know, it, it kind of all just clicked that if you're recruiting, you can – you can build the roster. You're out there evaluating talent, but you get to coach at the same time. So it's that mix of I loved coaching. I loved what I was doing, coaching goalies, and the ability to build a roster and evaluate talent and do those things, which was something that I really wanted to do. Um, it was a great mix, and I got into it thinking that I was going to love the recruiting the most. Um, and it turns out I, I, you know, I love recruiting because I love the the bond and the relationships you build with families and young men. Uh, but the coaching side of it is just—it's for me. It's—it's—it's it's, it's incredibly gratifying. It's—it's uh, it's hard to describe, but it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's special to me. What do you think your style of coaching is going to be? Uh, I think I'm demanding, and and I'm and I'm detailed, and I think you know guys are going to understand. We're going to be prepared. It's going to have a lot of similarities to Nate. Um, you know, and I think our guys, anytime we go into the game, are going to feel like we know exactly what we have to do to have success. And we've put in the work ethic during the week to that we can deserve success. Um, you know, on top of that, though, I, I'm a I'm a relationships guy. I, I'm not a, you know, this isn't about me. This isn't my team. This is this is the players' team. This is their opportunity to make to do something special in their college careers. I'm here to show them what it takes uh, and to help them achieve those goals and push them and hold them to a standard that I know is required to be champions, but it's about them. And, and so for me, you know, my, what, where I've had success as a coach in my career is that I can get them. I feel like I can get the most out of the guys, but they know that when I'm asking something of them or when I'm hard on them, that it's because it's in their best interest and it's the best thing for them. It's never about me. It's always about, trying to make them as good as they can be. 
You're taking over a program that's won just four games this past season. Uh, what do you have to do to get uh, back to a, a winning way? Well, it starts with recruiting, as you know. Um, you know, and, and it's just, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak about the prior staff, but, um, you know, it just hasn't been good enough. And, and you look at the momentum being built with the, with Ed Robeson Arena. You know, it, it's gorgeous. It's on campus. It's the first time CC's playing on campus. So we get to re-engage the student body. Our players don't have to go and drive 15 minutes to practice off campus and then come back. You know, they don't have to work out in a different place than where they practice. So, you know, we get Ed Robeson Arena going this fall, and we have everything we need there. It's a a state-of-the-art gym, state-of-the-art therapy room. Um, You know, the ice is there for us whenever we want it. Um, And so I think that's a game-changer. You put on top of that that we have a block plan, so our guys only take one class at a time. They take it for three and a half weeks, and then they get four days off, and they start the next class, and they take that for three and a half weeks. So when you think about being an athlete, and you know, never have to worry about having three midterms the same week or anything like that, I think there's so much in place at CC um, that we just have to attract the right people. And, and I think we can start doing that right away. I don't think, you know, we can, we're getting better right now. We're, we're getting better every day. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how quickly that's going to turn into, you know, winning seasons or top four in the NCHC. It's a, it's a heck of a conference. Um, but there's no doubt that we can start to get this thing turned in the right direction quickly. And I think there's a lot of excitement on the, on the recruiting trail in terms of what's, uh, what's happening and the potential, you know, with, uh, with a new rink and, and come back to campus and, and, you know, hopefully a new coach in a new direction. So uh, we're just trying to get out there and, and let everybody know how, how special we think this place is and what we think it can be. And we'll track the right guys, but it's going to be the guys that want to come in and work and win for CC and, um, with a goal to develop and, and, and do something special and do something that people, you know, probably right now don't think is, is, uh, is very obtainable. But uh, hopefully they come in with a little chip on their shoulder. And you've got a great resume, Chris, with uh, winning a national title in 2015 at Providence and uh, two gold medals at the World Juniors with Team USA, including uh, this past January. Uh, how thrilling was it to be a part of that uh, this past year? Because uh, the way it started uh, with the loss in the opening game and uh, Spencer Knight looked lost in that game. And, of course, he had to end up turning things around, and you guys ended up you know, winning the whole thing against Canada, who, you know, being at home, it seemed like was it was their you know, basically their gold medal to lose, and they ended up losing it. And I, to me, I think a game in the final with Canada, Canada never had a pressure game, and uh, when you guys took the lead, I think they sort of like froze. Yeah, I agree with you, and and you know, I I, um, I will say I don't think they lost it. I think we won it. Yeah. Um, I just think we were flat out better than them in that game, and and our guys. You know, and, and we had built that all, all, all tournament. And as you know, with anything, adversity is so important when it comes to winning championships. And, um, you know, and Kansas hadn't faced any. And, and we had a belief in ourselves that, that we could. And we had a group in the old ones in the old one birth year that had, you know, been the best in the world for a long time. And so they were used to beating Canada and they were used to beating Russia. And so, you know, that, and when that's the core year world junior team, um, there's already that, that belief, and Trevor Zegers obviously wasn't afraid to share it, you know, in his pregame uh, interviews and saying that we don't think they've been tested, but we think we have the ability to do it. And, um, and it was special to do it with Nate because um, he was so good in that. Um, you know, and it's hard to describe, but 
he just had the pulse down to a T. He knew exactly, you know, what button to push, when to push it. Um, you know, he, he asked a lot of the guys, and as soon as they gave it to him, like, you know, it was it was time to roll. And, and so to do it with him was, was certainly special. I look back, and, you know, he's probably – uh, leaving Providence was one of the toughest things I've ever done. Um, and he probably wasn't happy with me, but it allowed us this opportunity to be together there. And, uh, and that was, that was special. And like you said, to beat a team that, you know, people were talking about it being one of the greatest teams Canada's ever put together. And we were just, we just, we were better. I think we played our game better than they did and we got to our game quicker than they did. And, um, and when they couldn't, uh, when they didn't have early success, like you said, it didn't seem like they knew how to how to make the adjustment or how to stick to it. So, um, but we had, we saw adversity early in the tournament, and we were in some do or die situations, which uh, obviously helps when you're trying to grow. I have to, I'll wrap this up by um, going back to your playing days at Union, and you were involved in two of the more memorable games uh, in Union postseason history: the, uh, the RPI playoff game where Ben Barr scored two shorthanded goals against you, and then the five-overtime game uh, your senior year against Yale. What do you remember about those both those games? I mean, I know there were tough losses, and I remember the Ben Barr goals, and I you basically had the same play, and they came out of that try to play the puck, and uh, yeah, unfortunately Ben Barr won both battles in that one. But what do you remember about both those games? Honestly, the, those three goals. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's you know, I, I remember the, the two Ben Barr ones and, and my decision and me going out and, um, and how that unfolded. And then I remember, you know, Meckler scoring off a rebound shorthanded. And um, as a goalie, you don't remember much else other than the goals you give up. And, and I do remember, you know, in the five overtime one, um, you know, I do remember just the locker room in between periods and, and how it was. And then, unfortunately, uh, you know, I remember the feeling when, when the puck went in the net. And I think, um, I think I still remember talking to you afterwards and saying, you know, this wasn't how I wanted to be a part of writing history at Union. Um, and it wasn't. And it was, it was hard. But, uh, but uh, I love those teams. And, and we gave so much to each other. And, and, you know, we never got the results that, that obviously we wanted and that unions got on the have since then. But, um, but we, you know, we worked really hard to be, to be as good as we could be. And, and at times it just wasn't enough. But when I think back to those, uh, obviously I grew a lot. I remember it was my senior year and I'd go out and play a puck and people would still come up to me and tell me how nervous I made them when I went out to play <laughs> a puck because of how my freshman year ended. So, People never let me forget, which is all good. Well, I I, I have to tell you this because I was in the press you when know, I covered that RPI game, and I, I you know you did the first time with with Barr, and then the second time you did it again, I'm 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 going to the press box. He's doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I know it. Well, the first one, the first one, I went out and I basically did a two pad stack at the puck, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was almost like a bang bang play. Yeah. So I did a two pad stack at the puck, and I went like sliding out. And I got it away from whoever the first guy was. It just went straight to Barr, who I think was actually the second guy in that race. He wasn't the first one. Then the second time it came down, the puck went out. I got to it well before he did. But I went to just play it to my left. He read it, slid over that way. Joel Beal was um, was in a butterfly at the net. And it's still, you know, and playing goalie for me. 
um, it hit Ben Barr in his stomach, dropped to his tape, and he, he slid it by Joel Peel. So, well, was Nick, um, Nick Economakis uh, and Scott Bashick both assisted, assisted on both those goals. Yeah, yeah. So, but I hate to bring up bad memories, but uh, I know you were you were feeling bad after that game when I talked to you afterwards. But uh, hey, listen, you guys you guys helped the stepping stone with the with the program there, getting it to where it is now. You know, obviously winning the national championship in twenty fourteen. So you you've had a you know you had a great career at Union, and uh, it's you know, the fans remember you, and I think a lot of people I know on Facebook on the Union Hockey Facebook page were happy to see you get the job. So I'll be happy to. Uh, you know, hear from you here on the podcast and in, in the Gazette. Well, I, I appreciate you reaching out. It was good catching up. Um, oh, yeah, but well, before I, I forget. Union. Uh, yep. Yeah, but one more thing I forgot. You're coming back to Union in October. How's that? I mean, are you looking forward to that? Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, it's actually crazy that we start at home against St. Lawrence, and then our first road trip is at Union College. So you can't make that stuff up. Unbelievable. Well, Chris, we're looking forward to seeing you in October, and uh, uh, good luck with the job, and uh, we'll keep in touch, and uh, we'll talk soon. I look forward to it, Ken. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. All right, thanks. That's Chris Mayotte. Coming up, we're going to look back at the career of legendary WRGB Channel 6 news anchor Ernie Tatro with Liz Bishop here on the Parting Shots Podcast. What's your favorite high school sports memory? A late-inning rally? A game-winning shot? A photo finish? Maybe it's a pep rally or a pregame ritual. Maybe it's the euphoria of a late-night bus ride home after a hard-fought win. Maybe it's having pizza with teammates after the game. Now, imagine if it never happened at all. School sports need your help. With budgets getting tighter, it's more than the games that are on the line. It's all the traditions, the community pride, the culture of your hometown high school. Plus all those memories that are on the line too. What can you do? It's simple. Buy a ticket when you can. Go to a game. Take the whole family. Let's do everything we can to keep those cherished school sports memories alive. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, I'm Cena Menzel Cross Coach William Gleason, and you're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. A local legend passed away last Thursday. Ernie Tatro, who was the anchor at WRGB Channel 6, died at the age of 94 and worked there for a long time. And uh, one of the people he worked with was Liz Bishop, a legend in her, herself. And she joins me now to talk about Ernie Tatro. Uh, Liz, appreciate you coming on the podcast. And, uh, what about Ernie? He, I, I came up here in 1990, and he was uh, he, he commanded authority on the on the newscast. And uh, I know you had a long uh, run with him as uh, anchor at Channel Six. What was Ernie like? Well, first of all, thank you so much for letting me come on, Ken, and talk about Ernie because uh, I just loved Ernie Tatro. I mean, I want to start out by saying that. So there's there's no question about it that he was the most, you know, uh, formative influence on my career. He was my mentor. He was my best friend for the 12 years or so that we anchored together. You know, there was this, when I started working at Channel 6, I think he was about twice my age. So, I mean, there was this huge age difference between us. And he could have just sort of looked at me as somebody 
to, if not ignore, at least, you know, not invested because we had, you would think we would have so little in common, but he was, that's not how Ernie was. Ernie is the most generous, nicest, uh, kindest guy I think I've ever worked with. And, and he had absolutely no ego and no vanity. And he was without question the the go-to anchorman in, in the WRGB, in our Albany, Schenectady, Detroit market back in those days, as it was known. But he was just, um, he was he was everything. And yet he never acted like he was everything. And I, to be perfectly honest, I don't even think he was aware most of the time that he was everything to everybody. So, I mean, that just gives you a little sense of, of this really kind of humble, very curious guy. He, he wanted to know something about everything. And, you know, I'd sit next to him on the set and every day I'd learn something about something that that day had fascinated him. And then he would totally research it. And this was before the Internet. And But somehow he would know all about it. He'd sit there and fill you in on what he had learned that day. And that it was just a great experience. So... Ask me questions, but you know I love Ernie Tatro, and I and I I miss them already. And you couldn't have gotten it better. You know, there's always one person in your career that kind of was the was the one in your life that that inspired you and that you admired beyond all others. Well, Ernie was that guy for me. Now you started in sports at Channel Six, as I recall, correct? Yeah. So yeah. So when you made a transition to become news anchor, what did you learn? What did Ernie tell, tell you? What did you learn from that? Well, by the time um, Ernie and I worked together, uh, when I, I did sports uh, for about eight and a half years. So I was doing sports for a long time. And knowing that's a little bit of your background, uh, I'm not quite sure. Ken, are you from I am not from this area. I'm from Philadelphia originally, and I, I went to. Oh, okay. uh, I, I, I started out in York, in York, Pennsylvania, when I went to college and worked in the uh, newspapers there. So I, I came up here well, in 1990. Okay, well, I'm going to bring up a name that I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with, and that's Bob McNamara, who did sports oh, at Channel yeah. Six. Yeah, I know Bob. And, I remember Bob. Yes. Oh, oh, okay, good. So um, Mac was uh, Mac was instrumental in my getting hired. And uh, as I said, I did sports for eight, eight years, and um, they asked me to switch over to news uh, because um, apparently, you know, being the only female doing sports on the market, um, I people knew who I was, and you know that's an important um, thing to have in your pocket if you're in television to have people know who you are. So they wanted to kind of take advantage of that. And they asked me to transition into news. And much as I love sports, I thought, well, Mac has been here for like 20 years. He's not going anywhere. And so I'd better, I'd better make the move. So I did. And a week after I did, Mac left and went to Channel 13. <laughs> but there was no turning back. Yep. So uh, that started me on my path. And actually, the reason I bring that up is I started by doing the 11 o'clock news with Ed Daig. And then uh, when Ed left, uh, I did the 6 and 11 with Ernie. So that's how we start. So by the time Ernie and I were together, um, I had had a little bit of uh, news anchoring experience. But but I was sitting next 
to a legendary anchorman. I mean, there was no question that this was an iconic figure in broadcasting. And he was so gracious about the fact that, you know, this neophyte was sitting next to him. Um, that, you know, that was the thing about Ernie. He just never seemed to be aware of the position that he held in, in people's minds and hearts. So I think the things that he taught me to get around to your, to your question, um, he taught me curiosity. I think that's the most important thing because he really had, that was his, his trademark, was that everything interested him. He also taught me, which also was his trademark, was to listen. And by listening, when he would do interviews or he, I would, you know, I would watch his stories on the air and it was clear that he got people to say things that nobody else could get them to say. He had this ability to, to listen and elicit real emotion and genuine reactions from people. And I think that's what set his, all his stories apart was that when you watch them, they were genuine. The people in them were genuine. Ernie was genuine. So, you know, a lot of times you see stories on the air and you think, well, you have kind of a glancing interest. But Ernie's stories you really cared about because you could tell he did. So I think those are the two most important things I learned. But um, obviously there were others that I, I didn't learn as well, like that whole idea of being just completely without ego and without, without, um, you know, I don't know what the word is, but just to, just to be really human. I think that when I think of Ernie, I think of a real human guy, just real genuine. I, I can't say enough good about him. So, you know, those are the, those are the things that when you sat next to him, you, and, and I learned to laugh. I mean, not that I wasn't a good laugher because that was the thing about my relationship with Ernie. We used to get in trouble on the air for <laughs> about my boss for laughing too much. And it was because I knew Ernie liked to laugh and because I kind of knew which buttons to push to make him laugh, I often pushed those buttons <laughs> just because it was so much fun. If Ernie laughed, I laughed. And, and at the time, I mean, again, this predates the, your knowledge of this market, but when we when we were all kind of like uh, younger and and uh, as a group together, we had a really uh, this great group of people. Tim Welch was doing the weather. Now back in those days, he was not a, a meteorologist; he was a weatherman. That's right. what we called him. And um, he he was this great big personality, just a terrific guy with like a great sense of humor, who also had the who had the the wickedest laugh you've ever heard in your life. So if I could get if I could get him to laugh, then he would get Ernie to practically collapse on the desk. So and that got us in a lot of trouble with our new director. So we were told pretty much, all right, lay off the laughing. So we'd go for about a month without laughing, and then then it would all start up again. But you know, again, some of the best times of my life, without question. Yeah, Ernie was an anchor. Just didn't sit there and give you the news. He went out and did, uh, reported on stories. I think of one, the, the one uh, highlight I saw in the uh, tape that uh, they ran uh, on, on Friday was he 
went and lived like a homeless person for a few days. And yeah, I mean, yeah. what was the? I mean. Why did he go out there? I mean, he could have just you know sat on his laurels and you know like, read the news. But what, you said the curiosity that, that is that why he did stories like that. I think yeah. You know, I think um, first of all, that was what he was. You know, there are a lot of people that are that are anchors that are more than happy just to sit in a studio behind a desk. But that never appealed to Ernie. I mean, it was really. At his request, I mean, he was angry the 6th and the 11th, he asked to um, to work a day shift so that he could go out and report and then come in and anchor the news. So he, and, and I remember him saying to me, you know, I, I really got the best of both worlds. And for him, that was, I mean, it was just, when you see, and we have, I mean, we've seen this huge outpouring of love and affection for Ernie in his passing. And I and I really, really believe that that was generated by his love of being out in the public, of being out talking to people and, you know, learning their stories. So um, I, I think that he knew that um, not only was there great benefit for him professionally from being out on the street, but that he could tell a better story that way. And he was he's without question, one of the finest storytellers I've ever worked with. So nobody knew how to, you know, cut to the chase, but at the same time, really just sort of color the story with the personalities of the people that he met along the way. And and the homeless story, um, I'm not quite sure, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure how that came about. Uh, I don't, and my recollection is, and there's probably people with better memories that will know better than I, or maybe I just wasn't in the loop at the time, but um, my recollection is that it was kind of like Sub Rosa, that, that they didn't talk about it while it was going on until he came back. And, and the way I think it worked, and again, this is just my recollection of it, was that Ernie went out um, and a photographer with a hidden camera because you could because if you've seen the video my first thought was that ernie had the hidden camera which he may have had as well but it strikes me that somebody had to be shooting ernie because you can because you see him mm-hmm. out on the street yep. as well so i think that you know maybe there was a i don't mean a photographer obvious to people yeah i mean more or less or, it, but I, but as I recall now, I do believe that Ernie had a hidden camera in a, in like a bag that he carried with him. And he was out in the street for several days. I mean, it wasn't like just, you know, 10 hours or three hours or something like that. I mean, he, he was out there and he, and, it, and again, because of his unique and wonderful personality, he, he made friends with people, you know, who, who kind of took him under his wing, under their wing and, and helped him so that he could, you know, learn how to work the streets. And that was all part of his report. I mean, it was, a, it was, it was amazing. And the impact that it had was amazing because, because it was Ernie and because Ernie brought this back and said, you have to see this, this is important. I think people realized it was important and, and invested in in doing something about it and Ernie got very involved again you know it wasn't as if he just did it for the story he he became sort of a um, 
uh, a champion of the homeless in the area and got very involved in different organizations and and again because of his persona and you know, sort of the iconic statue that he had he would go out and speak on this and and really it became it became another passion of his and also became a minor hollywood star back in 1992 when he was in the the movie sneakers how did that come about with with ernie well that's another again i mean everything all these great moments in ernie's life were truly a credit to his wonderful personality he was um he was a mentor to, I, I hope I got the guy's name right because he predated me, this guy at the station. But Phil Robinson, uh, I think, is the director yes. of Sneakers. Yes, he, he, attended, he, he attended Union College. Right, and he was an intern at the station. And he worked with Ernie, and he just loved Ernie. And so when he was making the movie, he called Ernie and asked him if he wanted to be in it. So Ernie, I think they taped it in our studio and uh, sent it off to uh, Phil to put in the movie. But again, it was just because, to, and even even in his passing, I think Phil uh, remembered Ernie. I mean, it was it was it was a lifetime friendship that was formed when he was an intern at the station. Yeah, I'm just looking at the line that uh, Ernie wrote and he, uh, read. He said, it said in a surprise announcement, the Republican National Committee has revealed it is bankrupt. A spokesman for the party said they had plenty of money in their accounts last week, but today they just don't know where the money has gone. But not everybody is, <laughs> <laughs> not everybody is going begging. Amnesty International, Greenpeace, and the United Negro College Fund announced record earnings this week due mostly to large anonymous donations. <laughs> uh -huh. It was a great movie, too. I mean, it was a, it, you know, it, it's not as if Ernie appeared in a clunker. That was a great movie. Well, I liked that a lot. You should have gotten top billing over Robert Redford. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, we all went looking at the credits to see where his name was. I don't, I don't know if he made the credits or not. Yeah. But, uh, it was, it, I mean, what a thrill. What a thrill. And it was a thrill for Ernie, too. I remember that. He was, he was quite taken with that. But again, you know, how many people form friendships with a with a college kid, you know, that then leads to something like that happening. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, Liz, I appreciate a few minutes to talk about Ernie. Uh, like I said, I mean, I came here in 1990, so it was getting toward the end. But he had a command and a presence that you, whatever he read, you you listened, you, you, you believed him, and uh, he'll be greatly missed. Without, without question, in, in my... You know, in my own personal life, this was this was the guy that that really made me love my job and love everything about broadcast journalism as much as I have. So uh, I will certainly miss him, and I'm so so glad for the chance to just sort of tell everybody what a wonderful guy he was. Ken, thank you for this. Well, thank you for coming on, Liz. I appreciate it very much, and uh, we'll ho hopefully talk to you soon. And uh, that's Liz Bishop. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the winner of the latest Daily Gazette Auto Racing Contest in just a moment. season is here and it's time to play the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest. 
Go to DailyGazette.com to sign up and play. Predict the order of finish of each race via your auto racing account. The fan with the most correct points for the race will win a $50 grocery card and have their name mentioned on the Party Shots podcast and printed in Friday's Daily Gazette. The fan with the most overall points at the end of the season wins a $250 grocery card. You can also win a $75 Visa gift card provided by Second Street if you're the weekly national winner. If you are the overall national winner, you will win a trip for two to the 2022 Daytona 500. So go to dailygazette.com, sign up, and play today. The Daily Gazette Auto Racing Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Mark Kestisher, the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and proud member of the 518 from Gilderland High School. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Now, here's Ken. Back to wrap up the podcast. Week 8 of the NASCAR season is in the books, and the winner in the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest is Anitra Butler of Rensselaer. Anitra wins a $50 grocery card. Congratulations, Anitra. I'll be announcing the weekly winner of the contest, and that winner's name will also appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. Keep checking out DailyGazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you are doing in this difficult time. Even though the vaccine for the coronavirus is here, keep wearing the face mask while you're out. Be positive. Stay negative. And I can say I got my shot on Monday at UAlbany and uh, very efficient. I have to compliment everybody there at UAlbany. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I would like to thank Michael Kelly, Adam Schinder, Steve Karbowski, Chris Mayotte, and Liz Bishop for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette Newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports. Be smart, stay safe, wear the face mask.